0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
1: On oil and gas, I'm going to try to keep it really short. Gases come off a bit in this country, wildly expensive in Europe, as you've seen from the headline. Remember, the conversion is 6 to 1, so if LNG, I think it's settled down to like 60 or 70. But, I mean, 70 times 6, that's $400 oil, so it's wildly expensive. not clear in Europe whether there really is a supply-demand crunch because of Russia curtailing gas. The Germans say they build up ahead of time and they, they're keeping new plants on and they're, they're keeping coal plants on. So I don't know whether it's supply demand crunch. In may maybe the case is the supply demand of forward contracts because the utilities, which have been basically taken over by the government. So, so you see that with the new UK prime minister, you see that in Germany, you see that in France. The utilities are not allowed to pass on the cost that they're having to incur. And so the government lends the money to make up the difference. But the other thing that they need government support from is making the margin calls on on the forward contracts they have. That's a significant issue. For example, when the price of LNG got to close to $100, apparently the buyer, was the German government. Well, how much sense does that make? But they have something called Unifer, which they're taking over responsibly for, and no one wants to contract with Unifer, So the government may have been buying against forward positions so that Unifer didn't have to put as much collateral. I haven't read that anywhere. It's just something that occurred to me. But if that were true, you'd see things start to calm down, especially if you get into November, December. One of the things that happens in the energy business in November December is people start saying, hey, it's almost March. We're almost through this. So I think things might look a little more relaxed towards the uh, end of the calendar year. But once again, that's a, that's a guess. That's not a prediction. As oil goes, oil sounds significantly. I don't think it's what I'm calling the Yellen price tax, this idea that the, the US Treasury is cooked up, but the, the heads of the Treasury Secretary, Jan Yellis, that rather than embargo Russian oil, which supports the pipes of oil up, the pipes of gasoline up, by not allowing cargo insurance, which runs a lot of that through Lloyds, and not allowing ship owners pick up cargoes unless someone can write a certificate that Russia is getting less than a certain price. This is their alternative, the sanctioning Russia, rather than giving up Russian barrels because of the 10 million barrels, food products that Russia produces, a lot of it's still being used in Europe. Maybe a million barrels that they get out to India and China, but, you know, eight or nine million of the 10 million barrels are still being used in Europe. They postpone when they'd actually enter into the embargo. And then there was an exception for Hungary and other countries If your pipe connected to the crude, you can continue to run it. So, what the US Treasury has been doing is looking for ways to thank and to hurt Russia without, without actually embargoing the oil, forcing the price of oil up, forcing the price of gasoline up, and hurting them in the midterm. So, it's totally political from the US point of view. Putin has said that anyone who participates in the price gap will heals curtailed production. We'll, we'll have to see how this all looks out. And then the Iranian negotiations with the U.S. and the European Union may be making some progress. Uh, that's going to cut both ways. There'll be more of the Indian oil available, but Saudi really doesn't like that too much. Well, Saudi's libeled at curtailed production. Oil is really kind of a political football at this point. Against that, you have China having to go into lockdown on the they go an area again. And of course, that hurts the math in China. So that that's a negative for oil pricing. In terms of interest rates and the Fed balance sheet and that kind of thing, I have an opinion which I don't think Mike agrees. Well, Mike may partly agree with it. I have the theory that the Fed balance sheet was $2 trillion. When the Fed increases the balance sheet, basically adds the money it's creating money. The balance sheet was $2 trillion back uh, after the Fed went to the rescue of the capital markets in 08. I think it might have been as well as a trillion two or something. But anyhow, it got to $2 trillion. And then the the comeback from the Great Recession, that they call it, in 08, was slow. So that the Fed came up with the theory of quantitative easing, which was increasing the balance sheet by buying Treasury security. And um, because they couldn't get much lift in the economy after 08, 09. But before COVID, they'd worked it up to around $4.5 trillion. It really didn't appear to do too much good. They were in the process of taking it down during the Trump administration, because actually Trump got in and the economy started, I don't know whether it would cause it, but Rather than growing at 2% a year, real growth, it was growing at 3 or 3.5%. So it started to take the balance sheet down. Then, of course, COVID happened. And uh, in March of 2020, I guess it was, they basically said what Raji famously said when they was trying to hold the Eurozone together, whatever it takes, the Fed said whatever it takes. So the, the Fed balance sheet went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. During that period, in order to cope with COVID, the US Treasury ran a $7 trillion deficit for that two-year period in unprecedented spending. And five of that, in other words, Fed balance sheet going from four to nine, was famously financed by creating money. My theory about equity value is that we didn't have any inflation during that period, but we had asset inflation because we created all this money. And of course, the stock market was going up 20, 30% a year. I think that inflation, asset inflation, represented by the stock market, still has to be wrung out. Because I think the Fed balance sheet and the overall supply of money has to go down. Why does it have to go down? Well, in a 22, 23 trillion economy, we don't need a Fed balance sheet in that. You probably only need a Fed balance sheet of, you know, two or something. So it could do open market. And we have to get ready for the next time it's needed. You know, something like COVID, a recurrence or something. So they they decided to do quantitative tightening. But the first three months, they're very worried about this. They only reduce the balance sheet by thirty a billion a month. Now September is the first month when they'll go into full rundown. What that means is they don't reinvest any of the interest coupons they're getting or the principal repayment, and that'll be around ninety billion a month there's still a long way to go to get it down, but maybe they'll keep at it. I mean, 90 billion a month or 95 billion a month times 12, that's about a trillion a year. Uh, If they do that, the banking system has about 2 trillion of excess reserve. So I think the first trillion or so won't matter that much really in terms of availability of money, but it will make a difference. So if your favorite stock, I was telling Mike earlier, Two my favorite? Well, I like NVIDIA. I'm working to get to NVIDIA later, but I just think it's a great company. And and But my two other great companies that I don't own, I mean, I don't NVIDIA, but I don't. I, I like NVIDIA, and I like Snowflake, and I like ASML, one of the companies we're going to discuss. I just like them. Forget the value. I just would like to own them for a long period of time. I like the management. I like the way they present themselves. I like the cash flow characteristics. Well. If we have further decline in equity markets, as the Fed reduces its balance sheet, this is an opportunity. Just like what we talked about in the spring and winter and spring, if you like Microsoft, you like Amazon, you like Alphabet, these are great companies, and you have the whole stock market go down by 25 or 30%, they'll be getting in points when you get into these things at lower values. I'm kind of hoping that something like that will happen with NVIDIA, ASML, and Snowflake. And so that's a great lead in. We're supposed to finish up on the chip manufacturing companies, the LAM, ASML, and Applied, and, and we should do that. But NVIDIA's run into some issues. Mike and I look like geniuses because we're talking China, and all of a sudden, NVIDIA and AMD announced that they're having trouble licensing their new technology, their new chips to go into Chinese data centers, that may make us make look pathetic. I doubt if it deserves, but, but clearly the U.S. is tightening up. And when you look at LAM and HTML and Applied and chip companies, an awful high percentage of the equipment goes into China. So with that in a lead, and the I've already used more of the 30 minutes that I want to, let's turn it back over to Biden. to He can comment correct anything I may have said or omitted and uh, and then leave it so that this week we finish up the chip manufacturers and we have some commentary on the you know, that NVIDIA and AMD have run it. Over to you, Mike. Yeah, let's
0: start on the export restrictions for NVIDIA and AMD. I think I said this last week that it would be a big leap for the government to focus on a particular technology but after seeing these these additional restrictions on nvidia and amd come out it seems that maybe the government's willing to go farther than they had been in the past in a way i don't think that this new export control is really much different than the itar related stuff that they've had in the past it's more just the realization that hey these products that are used for building running artificial intelligence models can be used for digital advertising, or they could be used for war game simulation, or you know cyber attacks, or cyber defense, or many other applications. So the lines are now blurred. So actually, relatively logically, the US government said, hey, we want to know what you're planning to use these things for. It's a pretty material potential headwind for nvidia i think they said 400 million dollars a quarter is at risk now when they say at risk they they mean they do 400 million or expecting to do 400 million dollars with revenue specifically in those products that are targeted the question is whether or not the chinese companies that are purchasing them will get the licenses for them so we will definitely dig into that in more detail because i think we're going to go through the fabless semiconductor companies in the next couple of weeks i don't think we've pinned down
1: an order but nvidia is high on that list for sure my pick of the three manufacturing companies you know i i'm, I'm not as i say i'm not expressing opinion on relative value my stick is lamb and my pick is asml and Applied to kind of number three in line because they kind of do everything but I thought to explain where he thinks lamb strength is because he and his partner jason they own it they think it really makes some sense. I'm just the dude by SML because of the way they run their business. And, and I was hoping because they were Dutch, they wouldn't be subject to potential license problems sending their equipment into China. But Mike pointed out quickly that a lot of the ASM capability has been acquired with U.S. acquisitions. And even though they're based in Holland, they can't just tell the U.S. government, forget it. We're not going to out of your license rules, that's just not possible. But over to Mike on the edge that he thinks Lam has uh, as compared to the other semiconductor conductor equipment manufacturers.
0: Okay, so uh, for clarity, I also like ASML. We do have a position in ASML, so I like them both. The part of this is picking picking where you want exposure, and Lam is main, I guess, strongest product, meaning the one that has the best moat, if you will, meaning that other players can't do what they can do, is leading edge etch, specifically it's called dry etch, and the technologies around there. They actually compete head-to-head with applied materials, which we'll talk about in a little more detail shortly, but they are clearly the leader in that particular process. And if you look out longer term, we expect that more semiconductor production over the next decade or so will shift from duv to euv and as it shifts from duv to euv there'll be a lot more kind of in the same way that applied is seeing a huge boom in their trailing edge technology that's being used alongside the duv machines we expect to see that similarly happen with Lam research so it might be good just to cover the high level process of manufacturing the chips and Touch back on what applied materials specifically does and what ASML does. Does that sound like a good plan? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So when you when you manufacture a semiconductor, you start with a silicon crystal and you grow it into, I believe they call it an ignit and you specialize equipment to slice it into super small pieces, and those super thin layers of silicon are called wafers. The semiconductor manufacturing process is an Ultra clean manufacturing process that's designed to relatively rapidly produce these wafers with minimal defects. So, that process is sort of like building a city all at one level, floor level at a time. So, imagine all the streets and all the buildings, there are different layers. And each of those layers, as you build them, they're composed of metals, which would be conductive, or dialectic or non-conductive layers. So it's a process of putting material on and taking it off. The key element in this whole process of adding layers and removing layers is lithography. and That's what ASML does. And so essentially when a layer is put onto this wafer and the lithography process is essentially a photo mask in which an image is projected onto the wafer and that image is projected on with an EUV or DUV, essentially ultraviolet light, which causes the pattern to be etched onto the light wa- wafer. The following processes will remove it, such as etch, that's a removal process, will remove that in a hyper-precise way so that the semiconductor can be built. Like I said, ASML is essentially the only player in leading and even most trailing edge lithography the rest of the steps are sort of mixed between a couple of different players. We've talked about Lam Research which has quite a bit of market share in the deposition and etch phases. Applied Materials, which is one we haven't spoken about before, is another American company that has pretty much has exposure to every step except for lithography. And the company has been pretty successful in developing that technology. Although I would argue, in spite of the fact that financially it looks extremely strong, I would argue that there are some kind of chinks in the armor, if you will, and that they have not stayed on the leading edge. They've allowed companies like Lab Research to capture more market share and establish processes that are distinctly better and defensible from an IP perspective. Back to ASML. About 40 percent of the rev- revenues are EUV, and to reiterate, EUV is the, the more cutting-edge technology. Those machines cost somewhere around 150-plus million dollars each, and the new high-NA EUV machines are like 350 million dollars. So this is a significant expense. It's probably the single though well, it is the single most expensive piece of equipment that you put onto a semiconductor manufacturing line. DUV machines can cost up to $60 million, and they get a lot cheaper from there. The U.S. has the ability to block that DUV technology from being exported to China, where DUV, my understanding, is is completely produced outside of the U.S., and there's no IP held in the U.S., so they're currently able to export that. If you remember the 7-nanometer chip that was made in China, it is pretty well understood that was probably an ASML. DUV lithography machine that was used for that.
1: The thing I like about ASML is that um, they have a pretty big order book because Intel, as they try to catch up, one of the mistakes they made over the last decade or so was to not use ASML equipment as much as Taiwan Semiconductor did. Kind of ridiculous because Intel was the founding stockholder of ASML. And that was one of the ways Taiwan Semiconductor got so far ahead. But with the CHIP act here in the US and this effort to try to bring more chip manufacturing capacity back to the US and and the Chinese trying to catch up, it seems to me, with their own version of Taiwan semiconductor, it seems to me that <clears throat> these people who make this equipment, you could say that if chip demand slows down, you know, the old expression, if if chip demand catches the cold, the manufacturing, the semiconductor manufacturing companies will catch pneumonia. The thing is, these companies are all pretty well financed. They're all buying in their stock. And I'm not, it's dangerous to say this time is different. But with the push for the U.S. to try to do more of this manufacturing in the U.S. and with Federal support and loans and grants and whatnot, and Intel trying to go into making chips for other people, not just their own design, and China trying to do whatever they can <clears throat> to have a comparable capability. It just seems to me that you've got two or three positive things about semiconductors, <clears throat> equipment manufacturing that haven't existed in prior downturns, that being said, that sounds way too optimistic. So we're going to have Mike pour a little cold water on it, I hope.
0: Well, you're kind of hitting the broad thesis on the head is that we need more semiconductors. Uh, The number of semiconductors in a car has increased by an order of magnitude over 10 years that's just one product. But now your toaster is connected and your fridge has uh, AI sensors in it and everything's just going to be more connective as this technology proliferates. So there are some really technical pieces as to why certain parts of the semiconductor supply chain are are squeezed. And, and a lot of it has to do with too much demand for processes for, that there is not sufficient capacity on. So, you look at a lot of the trailing edge nodes, they're especially for automotive, for example, they're resilient processes that are well known, well understood, but nobody's going to go out and invest in a new one of them. I guess the industry in general has taken it for granted that there would always be supply available on trailing edges. And that's no longer the case. So we're moving to a new era in semiconductors, which some refer to as homogeneous compute in which you'll have certain certain chips designed to do specific tasks and then assembled into a broader packet essentially making it less necessary for someone to have a full chip design team but maybe more of a custom solution based on some off the shelf relatively off-the-shelf products. So uh, all that is to say that there's a lot changing in this process that bodes fairly well for uh, most companies that play in this place.
1: Yeah. And consider that Apple and Amazon and Google with their data centers and their other nuisance are designing their own chip based on licenses from ARM, which you remember NVIDIA wanted to acquire And that got shot down because of antitrust resistance all over. It's actually, they got antitrust opposition in Europe. They got antitrust opposition in the U.S. They even got antitrust opposition in China. But the armed licenses have enabled Apple and Google and Amazon to catch up. So when Taiwan semiconductors, you know, make a 7-nanometer chip They may not just be making them for Apple, for iPhones or iPads. They may be making them for Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft for their data centers. So rather than rely on the latest from ADM and NVIDIA or Intel uh, for the data centers, they're going and designing their own chips, which has to be a little alarming to the chip designers. Everyone in the chip business at one point I guess, if you go back far enough, had their own capability to make chips. But then ADM got out of making chips. I guess NVIDIA never was. And uh, Intel <clears throat> continued to just design, just make the chips they design. That created a chance for Taiwan Semiconductors to, to build a business that, you know, that basically Intel is trying to emulate here. And if you reflect on all this and you think, well, what does that mean for uh, LAM and SML? Um, it just seems to me that there's going to be more semiconductor equipment money as China tries to catch up, as the U.S. tries to bring more of it on shore, and Taiwan semiconductor and Samsung try to maintain their edge. Because here's the interesting thing. You would think that if you're, Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung, you'd have a risk that you'd be up and down. In other words, when people needed chips, you'd have a lot of business. And then when they didn't need chips, it'd fall off. What especially Taiwan Semiconductor has been able to do is to get firm commitments from people like NVIDIA or Apple or whatnot, so that the risk, the inventory risk, has been put back on the chip user and designer like Apple or the chip designer like NVIDIA. It just looks to me like there's going to be more of a push to buy the equipment to do these things. And ASML seems to have the highest you know, value added with their equipment. Maybe LAM is equivalent. But that just seems to me to be an opportunity so that if you find something you really like, I mean, NVIDIA has just been better at designing chips, better even than AMD. Here are three really outstanding companies, ASML, NVIDIA, which is running through a lot of headwinds now, and then Snowflake, which we went through software. They they do seem like the best position to the extent that, you know, we continue to draw the Fed balance sheet down and equity values come down. You know, you have to keep your eye on it. If these companies continue to perform, you can buy shares of stock at these companies and just put it away, just own it for 10 or 15 years, despite being in a highly competitive market where, you know, there are disruptors. I think those three companies that demonstrated a capability of doing better, no matter what the new technology is, they seem to be able to get there first. Do you think that's an overstatement, Mike, for those three companies?
0: No, because there's some dynamics to this industry that make it somewhat more difficult to disrupt and it has to do with the amount of coordination required among the different companies that are making chips. You're talking about a separate designer, separate fab and then a bunch of equipment manufacturers that have to work together in order to get a product to market. Two people and a dog can't start a new semiconductor equipment company in their garage. It's too intensive. It requires skill sets that are beyond that of which just two people can possibly have. So it actually bodes well as a business, I think, relative to other types of businesses, such as software, to where it's a little easier for a small team to make a big disruption.
1: I think that's well put. You can see in our discussion, we're trying to focus on companies that have The word boat is overused, and it kind of suggests that that you can't be disrupted. I think there's these really good companies, and they are the disruptors. I mean, you know, look at Tesla. You know, everyone figured they'd fail, you know, when they were just one factory in California. Elon Musk was flipping on the floor because they couldn't. That's when they started Model 3. They couldn't get their production rate up. Everyone, you know, pretty much gave them up for debt. Well, now they can do a million cars a year. They have a better balance sheet than Ford or GM does. I haven't had the time to look at Toyota and Volkswagen, but they definitely are better situated than Ford or GM from a financial point of view. Microsoft, you know, was kind of remade by the third CEO, Nardell, so that they license all their software rather than charge for it, you know, which. Seemed at the time he proposed that to be kind of risky, but it, it worked in phase. Amazon, you know, the founders moved on, but you know uh, the fellow Jesse seems to have some pretty good ideas. Google, how do you compete with Google and search? I mean, it'd just be impossible. So we we don't want to get stuck with a company that loses its edge or its ability to something and go forward. But these are really from sensational companies now it turns out the leading one is from taiwan um, but you know one of the things we'll get into in the next couple of weeks is you know can intel do it another thing we'll get into is um nvidia two different businesses really it's the data center business and then it's the cards used for playing games and mining crypto and so it is going through an adjustment and AMD has done such a fantastic job competing with Intel. You know, we've got to spend time on that. So I think we'll go from the semiconductor manufacturers into more of a more of a uh, covering the chip company again. And having embarked on this, doing fifty companies in over a year's time. When Mike and I first kind of talked about doing this, we thought, oh my goodness, fifty companies is a lot. Now, a month and a half into it or so. We have no question that we will find 50 different companies to go through. I mean, no question at all. In the second year, we'll probably do some repetition. But in the first year, we will get through 50 companies. And with that, everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for
1: you.